The destinations discussed in this episode are on the traditional lands of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs, the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians, the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde, and the Yakima and Klickitat peoples. Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orkut, and in this third installment of our Voyage Down the Haunted Waters, we'll be heading downstream from the Wallula Gap where we finished last time, into Oregon to explore the human side of the Missoula Flood saga. We'll be building on the geological foundation laid down in the first two episodes, focused on Montana and Washington, so if you haven't listened to those yet, I suggest going back and catching up. Then head back here and join me as we discover the many ways in which we still feel the ripples of the Great Ice Age floods today. Driving across the Bridge of the Gods into Cascade Locks, Oregon, you might wonder what earned the span such a grandiose name. As one of the few crossings of the lower Columbia River, it's certainly an important structure. With its flaring trusses, it's a testament to Jazz Age architecture and engineering. But still, isn't the divinely inspired name a bit over the top, especially given that any human structure in this part of Oregon is inevitably going to be put to shame by the grandeur of the surrounding Columbia River Gorge? In fact, the name is a tribute to a natural feature with an appropriately epic origin. That story is told by the Klickitat, who have lived on the north side of the river for millennia in the shadow of Pato, the mountain that would later be given the name Adams by English interlopers. Pato was once one of two brothers. The other, Y East, lived on the south bank. The two, it seems, never got along, but their father attempted to very literally bridge the gap by blocking the river with rocky debris to create Tanmahawis, the original bridge of the gods. The sun's quarreling reached a fever pitch when both began courting the beautiful Luit, and their fighting over her laid waste to the lands on which they lived. As punishment, the father transformed his sons and the object of their affections into the trio of volcanoes that rise above the gorge. He also destroyed Tanmahawis, unblocking the river, but severing the link between the north and south shore. To anyone who's lived in the area, the Klickitat story of the Bridge of the Gods rings true. The three volcanoes still occasionally lay waste to land around them, most recently when Luit, more widely known as St. Helens, erupted in 1980. And the bridge itself is much, much more than a cantilevered truss structure from the 20s. Hard as it may be to imagine, the Great River of the West really was dammed by a gigantic landslide, and just as the Klickitat have always known, its origin was closely tied to the geology of the gorge. Volcanoes and earthquakes have an impact, direct or indirect, on nearly everything in and around the active Cascade Range. But in the case of Tanmahawis, there was another force at work as well. As with so many features along the Columbia, especially the mind-bogglingly huge ones, the Missoula floods had a major role to play.
Like Grand Coulee to the north, the Columbia River Gorge is the spectacular result of rivers and the Missoula floods working together to erode a landscape. The river started this work, punching a valley through the Cascades before the floods came through. When they came, they did much the same thing they did in the channeled Scablands, blasted away any loose sediments and a good deal of solid bedrock, widening the gorge in the process. On the north side of the river, in what's now Washington, some of the rocks that make up the walls of the canyon are rich in soft and unstable volcanic ash. Before the floods, the harder rocks surrounding them kept these ash units mostly in place, but the floods effectively knocked out the stops. Ever since, the slippery ash layers, no longer hemmed in by solid volcanic rocks, have been the cause of massive landslides. One of these, near today's Cascade Locks and under the watchful gaze of Yeast, Pato, and Luit, formed the original Bridge of the Gods. A combination of carbon dating and tree rings from preserved logs suggests that this landslide occurred in 1450, well after the floods themselves, but recently enough to be remembered vividly by the people of the gorge. Indeed, flood-carved features across the northwest figure prominently in indigenous geography. The two sisters near Wallula Gap are one example, as is the huge monolith Cheche Optin, Beacon Rock, near the west end of the gorge. At one point, the rock was the core of a small volcano, examples of which you can still see throughout Oregon, their cones of loose volcanic rocks sloping down symmetrically around a solid plug of what was once liquid magma. The floods swept away the softer cone, leaving behind the sheer-walled spire of igneous rock, and forming the gorge's most prominent natural landmark. The name Cheche Optin, meaning the navel of the world, clearly shows just how prominently the rock figures in the world of the Klickitat and the many other tribes that live here, who since time immemorial have understood the beauty and the power of flood remnants. But what about the floods themselves? Archaeological evidence from southeast Oregon shows that people were living in the region between 15 and 13,000 years ago when the floods occurred, and the ancestors of those people still live here today. Indigenous oral traditions are maybe the most overlooked of all historical sources, which is a shame because they can record cultural memory back across thousands of years. Do some of these traditions recall the great floods of the last ice age? Unlike many of the rhetorical questions I pose on this podcast, I genuinely don't know the answer to this one. And at any rate, if those stories exist, they're not mine to tell. What is certainly true is that the eroded landscape the floods left behind had a huge impact on movement and trade between the Pacific and inland sides of the Northwest, not only for the land's original inhabitants, but through to the present day. The Dalles, the city that sits just east of the Columbia River Gorge, is the linchpin of the Northwest. Upstream, the Great River winds through fields of grains and sagebrush steppe, the dominant landscapes of the dry Columbia Plateau. Downstream, it flows past oak savanna and, shortly afterwards, through dense temperate rainforests of conifers. As long as there have been people here, it's been an important crossroads. Just to the east is the site of Wyam, or Salilo Falls. Now submerged beneath the dammed waters of the Columbia and commemorated at a riverside park, for millennia, it was a site where people gathered to trade and fish for spawning salmon, whose legendary migration, incidentally, could only penetrate this far inland thanks to the Columbia River and Missoula floods eroding a path through the Cascades. The rocks and channels of the falls made it a great place to net fish, but other falls along the Columbia provided similar opportunities. 
Its location almost certainly played a huge role in making it the most significant gathering place along the entire river. Usually, to travel from the wet west to the dry east, you have to traverse a high, treacherous, and unpredictable mountain pass. Only in two places did rivers carve a lowland crossing, here and along the Fraser in British Columbia. Of these two, the Columbia provides the much better passage. While the canyon of the Fraser is narrow, steep-walled, and full of dangerous rapids, the gorge is wide and, with the exception of the occasional cataract like Celilo Falls, much more navigable. Its greater size is due in part to the stronger flow of the Columbia, but it also owes a lot to the scouring power of the Missoula floods. Anyone who's experienced the sudden arrival of cold temperatures from the east in a Portland winter, or taken advantage of shifting air masses to go windsurfing at Hood River, can attest to how important the gorge is for the movement of weather systems across the northwest. It's been just as important for human movement as well. From the coast to the Rockies, the indigenous people of the Columbia Basin were and are adept boat builders and weavers, and these skills allowed them to take full advantage of the gorge's potential for transport and trade. Head to the Columbia Gorge Discovery Center in the Dalles, or the Tomastlik Cultural Center in Pendleton, where you can see firsthand the canoes and basketry that made long-distance trade and storage possible, as well as a sampling of the diverse variety of goods traded in the vast distances they traveled. It's in large part because of the presence of the gorge that dentalium shells, formed by a mollusk that lives in the cold, deep waters of the coastal Pacific, could be incorporated into the intricate weaving and beadwork of the plateau, and that obsidian from the high desert of central Oregon made its way to the Willamette Valley and beyond. The Klickitat in particular, thanks in large part to their homeland on the banks of the passage that made all this trade possible, became well known as intermediaries between tribes on either side of the Cascades. But in the opening years of the 19th century, newcomers to the region would also quickly learn the value of this flood-excavated portal to the Pacific, and their arrival would mark the beginning of a period of commerce, migration, and change on a scale never before seen in the area. ships were nothing new along the northwest coast at the close of the 18th century, as the Spanish, Russians, and English competed for access to its lucrative supply of otter and beaver furs. The newly independent USA came on the scene shortly after the Revolution, when the Yankee captain Robert Gray sailed into the mouth of the Columbia River and gave it the name by which it's most widely known today. Against all reason and in total ignorance of the mountainous west, the powers that be back east thought the river represented the western opening of a water route across the continent that would link to the Missouri and Mississippi rivers. In large part, it was to test this idea that the explorers whose names still resonate throughout the northwest were dispatched to the region. Meriwether Lewis and William Clark were the first people of European descent to pass through the Columbia River Gorge. Their reconstructed winter quarters at Fort Clatsop near modern Astoria notwithstanding, all physical traces of their journey through the region have long since decayed away, but their recognition of the gorge as a highway for trade between the coast and interior had immediate and long-lasting consequences. Within years, the U.S. and Britain were competing to control the river and the goods that could travel along it. The British, operating through the Hudson's Bay Company, had the upper hand early, establishing their headquarters at Fort Vancouver on the north bank just west of the gorge. A visit to the reconstructed fort, or the house of its factor, John McLaughlin, in Oregon City shows just how vice-like a grip the UK had on the region early on. 
and how much power and wealth the company's higher-ups were able to accumulate, thanks to the convenient passageway to the interior just upstream, and the world's strongest navy just offshore. Early American efforts were well-funded, but hapless in a way that was equal parts hilarious and tragic. John Jacob Astor and Thomas Jefferson hoped that the settlement of Astoria at the river's mouth would be the nucleus of U.S. dominance in the Northwest. Their well-laid plans met with disaster after disaster, though, and the colony, quickly renamed Fort George, was taken by the British in the War of 1812 without a shot being fired. But of course, what was then known as Oregon Country didn't remain in Britain's hands for long, because while the UK was mostly interested in the region for the material wealth it could gain from the one navigable path to the Columbia Plateau, the US saw it as a land to be settled. Conveniently ignoring the fact that there were already people here, the Northwest has long been home to one of the continent's densest indigenous populations, a second trail was forged from the east along the lower reaches of the Missoula floods. And while it was the erosive power of the floods that made the last leg of the journey possible, this trail was blazed to reach the sediments left behind by the floodwaters on their way out to sea. something of an oddity in the Northwest. In a part of Oregon known for its dense, evergreen forests, the valley, prior to the 19th century at least, was home to a patchwork of oak forests and grasslands, a savanna environment that exists today only in small patches, such as at Mount Pisgah in Eugene, or William L. Finley National Wildlife Refuge near Corvallis. And though the valley is hemmed in by mountains to both the east and west, it's remarkably flat, with a few hills around its margins providing the only real relief. It's from the top of one of these hills, outside of McMinnville, that you can both see what happened to most of the valley's original oak savanna, and discover how the Missoula floods made this, and the greatest mass migration in U.S. history, possible. Yet the crest of the hill is a rock that doesn't belong there. The Bellevue Erratic is a huge, angular chunk of the Belt Supergroup, the collection of Rocky Mountain geological formations that contain the ancient raindrops that so captivated Norman MacLean. The nearest outcrop of belt rocks is not far from my home in Spokane. Around 300 miles is the duck flies from this part of the Willamette Valley. Like so many other erratics along the course of the Missoula floods, this one was almost certainly rafted here on an iceberg. If it had been rolled along by the current or deposited by a retreating glacier, its sharp edges would have been rounded off during the journey. Its presence so far from the Columbia River and the path of the floods is a little surprising until you realize that, just downstream of Portland, the floodwaters would have encountered their last significant choke point, backing up and temporarily flooding the Willamette Valley. At their peak, the waters would have made it as far south as Eugene, and, if you were to plop the modern skyscrapers of Portland down onto the Ice Age landscape, only their upper few floors would have remained dry. Just as in Lake Lewis in Washington, Icebergs would collect along shorelines and start to melt, dumping whatever they were carrying as they did so. Several erratics were dropped across the valley. At Fields Bridge Park in West Lynn, you can see a monument to the most famous, the Willamette Meteorite, a huge chunk of extraterrestrial iron that struck the earth somewhere in or near Montana, but that was carried to what's now a Portland suburb by the floods. The story of how it got there and how it is inveigled away to its erstwhile home in New York is a convoluted one that probably deserves its own episode, 
but there's a much simpler reason that most of the other erratics in the valley have been removed. They were getting in the way of the economy. The 360-degree view from the Bellevue erratic leaves no doubt as to what this economy is built on. In every direction, you'll see crops of all kinds. The short walk up the hill takes you past a vineyard, appropriately enough since this part of the valley has become one of the continent's most celebrated wine regions. To see why, head to Coelho Winery in nearby Amity, where you can taste wines made from grapes that grew almost in the erratic's shadow. The valley is also known today for its hops, the fuel for the fire of the Northwest craft beer boom of recent decades. If you want to track this process all the way from field to pint glass, I can strongly recommend the farm operated by Rogue Brewery outside of Salem. But it's not just alcohol-related crops that grow here. The Oregon Department of Agriculture describes it as one of the world's most diverse agricultural landscapes. Grains and grasses have been especially important historically, but a staggering array of fruits, vegetables, and other crops thrive here. Hazelnuts are a particular favorite of mine, but if you're driving through the valley, do yourself a favor and stop at as many farm stands as you can to find out which produce you prefer. The rainy winters and warm summers play a role in this richness, as do the waters and sediments of the Willamette River. But remember that just downstream of the ice dam, the Missoula floods power washed away much of the rich, windblown soils of the Palouse. They also blasted out basalt bedrock, notably rich in rare nutrients, and swept up any unfortunate animals or plants in their path, along with all the organic matter they contained. All this flotsam had to wind up somewhere. Some of it made it all the way to the Pacific, finally settling out as a fan on the ocean floor west of Astoria. But a lot of it never got that far. Anywhere the waters backed up to form a temporary lake, the currents died down enough that the things they were carrying could be deposited. Walla Walla's onions and Hermiston's melons, both the best of their kind in my very biased opinion, grow in soils deposited by the floods, but the Willamette Valley got the lion's share of this nutritious mixture. The floods, then, gave emigrants from the eastern U.S. a reason to come to Oregon and a pathway they could follow to get there. In other words, without the floods, there probably never would have been an Oregon Trail. several places along the flood's path, most notably at the Whitman Mission in Washington and outside of Echo, Oregon. More importantly, this trail would have even further reaching consequences than the one blazed by the earlier explorers, shifting the Northwest's balance of population to predominantly white Americans and the balance of power decisively out of the hands of the British, their French-Canadian fur trappers, and their indigenous trading partners into those of the U.S. For better or worse, the legacy of this shift is still with us today, and many of the sites I've already mentioned allow you to approach this legacy from different perspectives. At the Whitman Mission, you can feel the religious fervor that drove the migration and gave birth to the misguided idea of manifest destiny. At the Columbia Gorge Discovery Center, you can get a sense of the challenges that the emigrants faced, and the pressures and draws that made facing those challenges preferable to staying out east. 
At Fort Vancouver, you can get a taste of the world they replaced, the surprisingly multicultural world of the Hudson's Bay Company. And perhaps most importantly, the Tamasli Cultural Center was built in the 1990s, 150 years after the opening of the Oregon Trail, to tell the story of the confederated tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, whose world, along with that of every other indigenous group in the Northwest, would be shattered by it. And of course, the Columbia River Gorge didn't stop acting as a major thoroughfare once the last acre of farmland in the Willamette Valley was claimed. As the 19th century gave way to the 20th, still more complicated legacies of the floods would emerge. Missoula floods tore through and widened the Columbia River Gorge. They pushed the walls of the canyon back up the valleys of several smaller streams that emptied into the mainstream of the river. When the waters receded, the valleys were left emptying out into space partway up the gorge walls, as hanging valleys, to use the geological term. But western Oregon is a very wet environment, and just because parts of their valleys had been eroded away doesn't mean the streams stopped flowing. They're still flowing, in fact, and as they rocket off the cliffs of the gorge, they collectively make up what may be the world's most spectacular string of waterfalls. Indigenous traders, Hudson's Bay Company trappers, and travelers on the Oregon Trail had all relied on the gorge as a vital transportation link, and this was still true at the turn of the 20th century as the first railroads opened along its flood-excavated floor. But the waterfalls were starting to attract travelers that weren't using the gorge as just a way of getting from one place to another, but that saw it as a destination in and of itself. In 1913, the railroad tycoon and promoter Sam Hill, whose mansion and weirdly out-of-place Stonehenge replica on the Washington Shore still provide some of the best views of the Eastern Gorge, and engineer Samuel C. Lancaster began work on what would become the Columbia River Highway to bring visitors from Portland to the waterfalls. Lancaster not only lived at the same time as J. Harlan Bretz, but the two seem to have known each other, and I've even heard it suggested that he came up with the idea of the Missoula floods independently. What's certainly true is that, at the same time Bretz was forever changing geology by integrating catastrophism and uniformitarianism, Lancaster was having an equally lasting impact on landscape architecture. Much of the highway he built was later replaced by Interstate 84, but stretches of it still remain, especially just east of Troutdale and just west of the Dalles. It remains one of my absolute favorite roads to drive, and it was brilliantly constructed to couple steady climbs through forests with sudden turns into open country that reveal expansive views of falls and river. You've probably seen pictures of its most famous built landmark, the tower-like Vista House that sits at a crest just above what would have been maximum flood level. From there, the road wends east through the densest concentration of waterfalls, including the crown jewel, the double plunge of Multnomah Falls. If you grew up in the U.S., you've probably driven a road that sounds similar to this description, because the Columbia River Highway was the template on which other scenic drives across the country were based. And despite the fact that subsequent road construction has split it into several smaller pieces, it remains hugely popular with visitors. Too popular, perhaps. Weekend and summer crowds at Multnomah Falls make this section of the highway essentially undrivable due to gridlock. Enthusiasm for the geological landmarks of the gorge in Willamette Valley has led to people removing pieces as souvenirs. This has been an especially big problem with the Bellevue Erratic, which is noticeably smaller now than when it was first photographed. And some of the eroded monoliths along the river, many with enormous cultural significance for local tribes, have been effectively destroyed.
and perhaps most visibly of all, increased crowds have led to cataclysms very different from the floods that helped form the gorge. In 2017, kids tossing fireworks into a canyon on what had been perhaps the most beautiful part of the gorge started the Eagle Creek Fire. Forest fires are, or at least were, rare in this wetter part of Oregon. But when they do happen, the huge amounts of burnable plant life in the rainforests makes for truly catastrophic events. And this one, right on the doorstep of Cascade Locks and just above the Bridge of the Gods, seemed especially apocalyptic. This theme of loving nature to death has played out across the Northwest, but it's especially important in the part of Oregon shaped by the Missoula floods, where ease of access, ridiculous scenery, and rich cropland have drawn people in large numbers for as long as there have been people there. I realize, of course, that bemoaning increased tourism to a place that I'm actively promoting travel to may seem more than a little hypocritical. And don't get me wrong, from the giant ripples of Camas Prairie to Grand Coulee to the Gorge, the Missoula floods carved an incredible landscape that you absolutely should visit. But more so than any other destination I've covered on voyages, with the possible exception of the forest of Fontainebleau, tourism is a key part of the flood story. That means that when you travel here, you're an active character in that story. Just as the floods themselves forever changed the Northwest, with lasting impacts on the science of geology, on indigenous cultures, and on America's most celebrated trails, we have the ability to shape how the legacy of the floods plays out now and into the future. this voyage down the haunted waters. In the spirit of former Oregon Governor Tom McCall, who summed up the worldview of many Northwesterners with the seemingly self-defeating travel slogan, come visit, but don't stay, I hope this three-episode deep dive into the Missoula floods gives you not only the motivation to follow their path from the Rockies to the Pacific, but the background to appreciate them and to make that trek responsibly. If you have been inspired to plan a trip, I'll be posting the accompanying blog post for this episode on our website, voyagepod.wordpress.com shortly. But as I've mentioned in every episode of this series, if you really want detailed information on the many flood-related sites in the Northwest, head to the Ice Age Flood Institute's page, where you'll find the most complete listing. If you do visit the Voyages site, you can also find details about the music featured in each episode, which this time was jazz from regional artists inspired by the Northwest landscape. Seemed appropriate for an episode that started with a bridge and ended with a highway that both opened in the Jazz Age. You can also contact me with any questions, comments, or episode suggestions on our site, or via email at voyagepod at gmail.com. And as always, if you've been enjoying Voyages and want to help me share it as widely as possible, please like, subscribe, rate, and review on the podcatcher of your choice. And also, of course, tell your friends. Thanks, and I hope you'll join me for all the voyages to come. <laughs>